saying, we know the memory verse, and they've been quoting it all the time, and so they've been having a lot of fun together. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Psalm chapter 32 today. If you remember, we spent about six months in the book of Galatians. We finished that. We're spending the month of August in the Psalms, and then when we come back in September, uh, we are going to finish off the book of Luke. If you remember, we've been in Luke off and on for a while. I forget the first message. I think it was September 12th-ish in 2013. But Luke is a big book. It's a giant book, but we will finish it. We will go straight through all the way uh, to the end of this year. Next year will begin in January in the book of Daniel. And so that's just a little bit of trajectory of where we're going. Um, the title today is The Path to Happiness. And uh, we're just going to go ahead and stand as we read the scripture. One thing we do here is we stand at the reading of God's word. And I want to go ahead and invite you to stand. We believe God's word comes from uh, comes from God, inspired by God, with the full authority of God, and so we stand in honor of God. Psalm chapter 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely, in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it, may, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for the Psalms. Thank you for this time that we now have just to look into your word. And Lord, I thank you for Psalm 32 where we just see that there is there's great joy and happiness through the forgiveness of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray today as we look at your word and we just clearly just look at forgiveness, that God, you would help us to understand forgiveness, to be forgiven if, if we've not been forgiven, to continually seek forgiveness in you. God, that we would see the joy of salvation today. Lord, I pray for your spirit just to work into our hearts. God, reveal sin, convict us of sin. Let us not wear masks. Let us not try to conceal our sins. God, you see everything. May we confess them to you. In your wonderful name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. The Psalms are neat. In them covers almost all the emotions that we can possibly experience. And really the Psalms are about how do we live as God's people in God's world under God's rule. That's kind of what the Psalms are all about. And here we are introduced to a psalm uh, that starts with the word blessed, which reminds us of Psalm chapter 1, which begins with the word blessed. And the word blessed means happy. And everyone wants to be happy. 
Everyone wants to be happy. In fact, there is no one who has ever been born that does not constantly strive for happiness. Blaise Pascal, the 17th century mathematician, this is what he said. All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. Now think about that. Everything we do is for happiness. Never takes the least step but to this object, to this happiness. If you look at it, we will endure great pain, great suffering, if we believe it produces happiness. But there's a problem in this world. And the problem is that we, as sinful people, are unable to experience real, true, lasting happiness. It's always fleeting. If you look at verses 1 and 2, David will use three words just to talk about our sin. He uses the word transgression, sin, and iniquity. Transgression points out that we're lawless. It means that we're rebels. Sin means that we miss the mark. They would use that word uh, in archery. If you miss the bullseye, it was a sin because you did not reach the, the standard that was there. And we use it in the, or it's used in the Bible to show that we miss the righteous standard that God has set. And then there's the word iniquity. It means twisted, bent, and crooked. David uses these. They're used all throughout Scripture to show that our human nature, because of sin, is completely and absolutely corrupted. And in verses 3 and 4, we see the effects of sin in our life. Look at it. It says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And we don't know exactly what David's referring to here. That's one good thing about the Psalms. When we read the Psalms, they're general. They don't usually tell us the, uh, the exact setting that they took place in, which then allows us as the reader to apply them more broadly. So we don't know what he's exactly referring to. Possibly David is referring to when he committed adultery with Bathsheba, killed her husband Uriah, and then tried to act like nothing has happened. But rather than being happy because he got the girl and everything he wanted, he says, my bones and my soul were groaning. Have you ever experienced that guilt? That guilt that continually weighs upon your conscience? It's the misery that kind of takes all the taste out of food and makes it bland. It's that weight that presses upon your chest. Have you ever felt that weight? That's the effect of sin. I remember when I was young, I went to the grocery store with my mom one time, and I asked for gum. She said no, and your typical mom reaction, can I have no? And so I asked for gum. She said no, but I really wanted the gum. In fact, I needed the gum. The gum was now the object of my desire. And so I think it was like that grape, bubblicious something, something grape, I'm not sure it was. Um, and so I was not going to let her stand in my way of my happiness. So I took the gum, put it in my pocket. And when we got home, I ran up into my room, put it under my bed. And I was like, I will enjoy this in secret later, all the sugariness of it. And then my mom entered my room, which only parents know how they do this. And she says, you know, we need to clean your room. Okay, fine, mom. We're going to start under your bed. And at that moment, 
all of a sudden, I, I was overwhelmed with guilt. I knew my sin was going to be found out. No longer was I excited about the gum, but I was ashamed about the gum. What had once promised happiness was now the very cause of my guilt and shame. Now, perhaps you're here today, you've experienced uh, this misery, this groaning that the psalmist is talking about. Perhaps you feel God's heavy hand pressing upon you, or maybe you know someone, you're counseling someone, you're walking through someone right now that is experiencing just this pain on their life. Maybe it's because you've committed adultery. Maybe you've been watching pornography. Maybe you've been uh, in just entwined in pornography. And if you have, or if you know someone, grab that book that uh, Andrew mentioned earlier out there in the foyer. It is really good. Perhaps you've been uh, caught in a web of lies and you're trying to keep them uh, straight, but it's getting more and more difficult to control. Maybe you've stolen money. Maybe you cheated on something. Uh, maybe you've been aggressive with your words or your actions towards a loved one. There's a countless things that can happen that can cause this misery, this weight to begin pressing upon us. But do you feel that weight today? Do you feel, do you sense the sin that you are in just sucking the joy out of everything that you do? That's where, that's where David is at here. He's talking about this time where he has sinned, and now there's this weight upon him. But there's an answer, and David talks to us about this answer. He says, do you want to be happy? Verse 1, blessed. There is a way to be happy. In fact, verse 1 and verse 2 both begin with the word blessed. And he's going to show us how is it to be happy. In Psalm 1, the happy person is the one who delights in the word of God, meditates on it day and night. And now, as we're in Psalm 32, we're expanding on that. Not only do we delight in the law, but we, we seek to obey it. We seek to strive and, and do what it says, which it leads us to repentance, which that's what he's going to talk about here is forgiveness. Because he says the happy person is the one whose transgression is forgiven. We see that in verse 1, whose sin is covered. And in verse 2, and is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. The truly happy person is the one who's experienced the forgiveness of God. It's the one who's no longer identified by their sin or condemned by their sin. It comes through forgiveness. So if, if lasting forgiveness or lasting happiness comes from forgiveness, how do we obtain it? Well, that's what he says now in verse 5. So verse 1 and 2 is, blessed is man. This is the way to be happy. Verses 3 and 4 talk about the problem of sin. Verse 5 talks about how is it that we obtain this happiness. And number 1, we see David acknowledges his sin to God. That's the first thing we do. He acknowledges his sin. Now, to acknowledge our sin means that we agree with God. That not only all of humanity, but we ourselves are sinful. It means that we agree, we do need a Savior, we do need to be forgiven. And then secondly, he confesses his transgression to God. This means he not only acknowledges, okay God, I'm a sinner, but he sees that he's offended God. Because it's one thing to say, if someone points out, you did this wrong, okay, yep, I did it wrong, I don't care, you know, move on. But here we, we confess it, we see that it has been an offense to God. Alexander McLaren he said this, and I really like this quote. He says, you do not understand the gravity of the most trivial wrong act when you think of it as a sin against the order of nature or against the law written on your heart or as the breach of the constitution of your own nature or as a crime against your fellows. You have not gotten to the bottom of the blackness until you see that it is flat rebellion against God himself. 
Ultimately, every sin is offensive to God. We, we offend others when we sin, but we most offend God. He's the one who's always most offended. But notice at the end of verse 5. So David acknowledges, he confesses at the end of verse 5, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. David is forgiven. His guilt is removed. His bones are no longer groaning. His strength is no longer dried up. So how does this happen? How can God forgive this simply? Well, if you know the gospel, if you know the narrative of the Bible, you know it's not simple. The only reason forgiveness is possible is because God sends his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross so we who believe in him would be forgiven. The word forgiven, have you ever looked at that word? It actually means lifted up. So when we receive forgiveness, when we experience it, it's because our sins have been lifted up. But where have they gone? Where did they go to? They've been lifted from us, but God just can't say, I'm just not going to hold this against you anymore. Poof, they're gone. They have to go somewhere. Something has to happen with them. Well, Jesus takes them. In fact, in Isaiah 53, it's this neat passage in the Old Testament prophet Isaiah that looks forward to Jesus and talks about what he will do. In Isaiah 53, verse 4, this is what it says. Surely he, meaning Jesus, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says this, For our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what we call the great exchange. We are sinful. Jesus is righteous. Jesus gives his Jesus gives us his righteousness, and he takes our sin. It's this great exchange that takes place so that now, by grace, when we stand before God, he sees us as righteous and forgiven, but our sins have been lifted up and placed on Jesus so that when he went to the cross, he paid the penalty for them. So God does, doesn't say, poof, this, there, there's no more. He deals with our sin, and he does it through the cross of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 11. Because of forgiveness in Jesus, we're now called upright in heart. Now, upright is to be straight. But earlier in verse 2, blessed is the man against the Lord that counts no iniquity. So in verse 2, we're described as, as having this iniquity, which means we're bent, we're crooked. But now, because of forgiveness in Christ, we are upright, we are straight. See, forgiveness is not just about... Um, having a clean slate, about being forgiven. It's about giving, being given the righteousness of God that we would be made new. We'd be made like Jesus. Sin separates us from God, but now through the cross of Jesus Christ, by faith, God brings us to him through his son, Jesus Christ, so we are no longer separated. This is why David is happy. Whether it's the sin of 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 adultery and murder that he committed with Bathsheba and Uriah or whatever else he is. He's saying, this is the path of happiness. It's forgiveness through Jesus Christ. It's only forgiveness in Jesus Christ that takes away the misery and the judgment of God against us. Amen, indeed. So who can experience the forgiveness? I think that's always a good question. So who is able to experience this level of happiness? What do we need to do to qualify? What steps do we need to take? I think we always want to know that. Well, we all know, well, if you've been here, and if you've been reading the Bible, we know that there's nothing that we need to do. Forgiveness is all by the grace of God and Jesus. In fact, Paul quotes Psalm 32. In fact, go read Romans 4 later, 
And Psalm and David, nope, Paul quotes David here in his writing of Romans 4 to prove to us that salvation is by grace and not something that we earn. Because forgiveness is not about a method. It's not about some six steps. You do this, you'll have a happy life. No, it's about a person named Jesus Christ. That's what forgiveness is. It's about coming in to Jesus. The path to happiness is, is in Jesus. Jesus has done it all. But then you say, wait, but doesn't, doesn't David confess his sin? Doesn't he acknowledge his sin? Can't we say he does something? Like there's an act of doing there, right? So how is it by grace? To acknowledge and confess our sin to God is not a work that we do on our own, but rather it is an act of faith that comes by grace. You hear that? It's, it's a work of faith that we do by grace. Faith is the gracious gift of God that we, would, that we receive by grace. So acknowledging and confessing our sin is not something that we do. Then God says, great, here's faith, now you can have salvation, but rather he gives us the faith that we would see ourselves as sinful before God, that then we would acknowledge and confess our sins and thus be forgiven. So we can say there are conditions on our salvation. We can say that, but those conditions are met by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So whatever conditions God gives us, he meets through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so thus we can say we are saved by grace and not by works on our own. And when we understand that, it's not something that we earn, it's not something that we must do, it's not something that we must achieve, then we realize that salvation is a free gift to be received, not a paycheck to be earned. It's something we receive. And if it's something we receive, and it's not something that we must earn, somehow we must merit, then that means we must all stand before God on some type of equal field that there's nothing that we must do to prove to there's nothing we must do to earn our salvation which also means there's nothing that we can have done that also cannot be forgiven by Christ because it's grace David who wrote most of the Psalms was a murderer adulterer so, uh, Paul who wrote most of the New Testament murdered Christians arrested Christians before he became a Christian you might be thinking here today there's no way it can be forgiven. You think your sins are too heinous. You think that you are too dirty and too, sh and too shameful. And you're right. You are. We all are. We're all too wicked and too shameful for any human method of forgiveness to truly cleanse us, which is why God sends his son Jesus. That's the whole gospel. That's the whole Bible from beginning to end. God creates man to be with himself. Man sins, is now separated from God, and thus the redemption plan comes all the way through to Jesus Christ that by, by faith in him, we might be brought back near to God. So we begin in a garden, we end in a city with God that fills the entire world, never again to be separated by, by sin. We're forever with God now because of the forgiveness of his son, Jesus Christ. Listen, if you're here today and you feel the weight of sin, the weight of your guilt pressing on you, if you feel as though your soul has been groaning, then know that, that even there, that's the grace of God. Look back at verse 4. Look at verse 4. For when I kept silent, my bones 
or this is verse 3, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Verse 4, for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. Whose hand is heavy on David? Is the interaction time? Whose hand? Remember, we don't ask it. We're, we're, we're not asking. It's not God. It's, it's, it's God. It's God's hand is pressing on David right now. Why? Because he's leading him to forgiveness. He's leading him to his son, Jesus. He's leading him to repentance right now. So if you are here and you are feeling that guilt upon you, know that that is not God's condemnation coming upon you, that you would never be forgiven. That is God's grace coming upon you. It is leading you to forgiveness. C.S. Lewis said this, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Think about that. Isn't pain often the means in which God uses to awaken us to his grace? I mean, it's not necessarily our desired method, but because of sin, our hardness at times, God will use pain as a means of breaking our hardness. God would rather us experience temporal pain now that we would awaken to his grace and receive forgiveness than experience a delusion of happiness that results in eternal damnation. You hear that? He would rather us experience temporal pain now that would awaken us to his grace and forgiveness than experience a delusion of happiness that results in eternal damnation. Now you might be here and you're saying, okay, but I don't want to think about my pain. I don't want to think about my sin. It is too horrible. You don't know the things that I have done. And if God truly knew the things that I have done, he wouldn't want me. Have you ever talked to someone like that? You might be feeling like that. Um, You might have talked to someone like that. I have talked to many people who describe their past in such a way. But look at how God, or look at how David describes God in verse 7. So verse 3 and 4, God is pressing upon him, leading him to forgiveness. David confesses the pain, the the murdering of Uriah, the adultery of Bathsheba, whatever it is. In verse 7, he says, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of delight. Do you see the joy that he has here? God is not waiting to crush us when we come to him in forgiveness. He's not going to give us some cosmic divine spanking. But in forgiveness, by faith, when we come to him, when we come to him by faith, he forgives us. Look, look at verse 10. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. There's joy in coming to know God. Because of sin, we think, we think happiness is found in hiding our sins, concealing our mistakes. That's why we wear so many masks. And, and you probably, maybe you do this now, maybe you have done it. Um, we act one way at home. We act another way at school, we act another way at work, and we act another way when we're here at church. Do you ever do that? Do you know people that do that? We just kind of, which group am I with right now? Hopefully these, never, these groups never collide, because then I don't know how to wear two masks at once. But we always wear a different mask. We're always pretending. We're constantly concealing our shame, our weakness, and our failures. But listen, the path to happiness is not us trying to act like something we're not. But it's coming to Jesus who accurately sees us that by faith in him we'd be forgiven and made new. 
this is a true path. It's not concealing. That's the joy. We can actually come before God and say, this is everything that I had done. You already know it. I'm simply acknowledging it, confessing it to you, and then we don't have to then shudder, wondering, what's he going to do? God crushed his son so that he won't crush us, but that he would surround us with his love. Now, on a side note here, let me say this on forgiveness. Uh, The world has perverted forgiveness into therapy. Um, The world says forgiveness is something personal, and it's something you just need to do with yourself. This is... um, the movie The Shack, the book, yeah. So if you remember, we had a whole class on that. I can give you my notes on that if you'd like to hear more about it. Um, it distorts the gospel in about a thousand ways. Um, but what it does is it, it communicates verbatim what is very popular in culture today, that forgiveness is about you feeling better, and so you just need to forgive yourself. You ever hear that? You just need to forgive yourself. Sounds good, Right? You're not, you're not doing well, you're struggling with life, well, just, just forgive yourself, you'll be okay. That is stupid and it's not true. I'm sorry if someone told you that. It is nowhere found in the Bible. Nowhere found in the Bible. Forgiveness is not, it's not just about you. Forgiveness is about restoring a relationship. It always involves more than one person. Ultimately, forgiveness is between us and God, that when we who have been separated because of sin would be forgiven now by the blood of Jesus, so we'd become family. Adopted into his family, that we'd be given the spirit, that he would call us sons and daughters, and that we would forever dwell with him forever. It's not about us just feeling better about ourselves, it's about being made new into the image of Jesus Christ. So you'll hear that a lot, just forgive yourself, you just need to feel better. Forgiveness is not therapy. True forgiveness is about restoring a relationship that has been broken. That's why when two people experience forgiveness, they come together as one. There's healing again. That's why between forgiveness, us, and God, anyone who has been forgiven by God is a child of God. There is no one who has ever experienced the forgiveness of God and is still separated from God. No one. Everyone who is forgiven by God, becomes a child of God, is near to God, is counted righteous as his very son is righteous. That's a mini rant. We could go much longer. Acts 3. In Acts chapter 3, Acts is just an amazing book. So in Acts, we really see the gospel being unleashed throughout the world. We see the power of the gospel going forth. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John, Peter and John, they enter into the temple. I get confused. Peter, James, John, there's a lot of those guys. Uh, Peter and John, they enter the temple about 3 p.m. He sees a lame guy, and he cannot, cannot walk. His legs don't work. He comes up to him and says, look, I have no money, but in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Immediately, the man feels the, the surge of, of just power going through his body, and he leaps up with joy. He leaps up, and he begins jumping and praising God. And what we see here, this is, this is physical healing, but it reveals to us also what happens when we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. This physical healing is a picture of what it looks like to our soul when we experience the true forgiveness of God, the spiritual healing that only God gives us to Jesus Christ. There's great joy, there's great leaping, but imagine if Peter had said, rise up and walk, and the man said, no. 
That'd be a totally different story in Acts, huh? Peter then goes on to explain, let me tell you who Jesus is. Let me walk you through the story. Let me talk to you all the way back from Genesis 3, where God promised that one day the seed of a woman would crush the head of the serpent. Walk through the story of Israel. Walk through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And then he says, no. He says he doesn't want to believe. Now, the reasons for his unbelief could be many, right? I mean, it would be hard to pin down what exactly is his reason. But at the core, it would be pride and stubbornness would be preventing him from wanting to believe in Jesus. Rather than experience the free gift of salvation, the happiness of God, because of a stubborn heart, he would rather sit in his misery. And this is what David warns us in verse 9. Look over at verse 9. He says, be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Think of it like this. The the farmer comes out to the field. He calls all of his animals in, and all of them come running in. You know, the, the sheep and the pigs and the chickens, they all come running into the barn where they experience the blessing of the, of the, the farmer. He feeds them, takes care of them. And then out in the field is the donkey. Nope, I ain't going in. I'm going to stay right out here. I don't want to go. Why doesn't he go in? There's, there's pleasures, there's food, there's hay, there's everything that he wants in the barn. There's the care of the farmer. He says, nope, I ain't going to do it. Because he's stubborn. Because he's stubborn. And there's many people, and you might be here today, and you're saying, okay, I hear the gospel again. Nope, I'm not going to believe it. Maybe you know someone, you've been sharing the gospel with them just over and over, and they just keep coming back. Nope, not going to do it. I don't believe it. The reason forgiveness is rejected, the reason Jesus is rejected, is because of the stubborn heart that we all have. And only by the grace of God is it able to be granted, that we'd come to him and experience his forgiveness. We acknowledge and confess our sins. He will forgive. Romans 10 says this. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. There is a day coming in which it will be too late. Verse 6, David says, Offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they will not reach him. Great waters would, of course, refer to judgment. Right now, God is graciously holding back judgment. He has not sent his son to return. He's saying, come all who believe in me and you will be forgiven. But there's a day coming when he will return. Or there's a day coming when we will die. That's before he returns. And at that moment, it will be too late for forgiveness. Every, every plea that we throw out at that moment will fall upon deaf ears. And the misery will no longer be a weight that presses upon us, but it will be a weight that crushes us for all of eternity. And that's the judgment that happens. That's why, that's why as, as unbelievers, they, they, they can have a great life in many ways. They, they can experience a, a level of happiness. But in another sense, it's only a delusion because it will not last. The only true happiness is found in Jesus Christ because in forgiveness in him we've been made new. That we never need to fear death. 
from when Christ returns, we have no need to fear. But just as we read, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts the Lord. Just think of that, of the Father's arms surrounding you forever and all of eternity. When we see the Father, we don't cower, but because of the Son, we run to Him and embrace Him. Do not be stubborn. Don't wait. If you're here today and you have not received Jesus Christ, don't be stubborn. If you still have questions, I have questions at times. I still wonder how certain things happen and stuff like that. But there's enough things that I do see as true in the Word of God. Enough answers that are there that give clearly enough evidence that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, of the one true God. And He is the way, the truth, and life, which is a memory verse for the kids this week. That all who believe in Him would have eternal life. There's two things I want to say. If you are a believer, so these are kind of more directed towards, if you're a believer here, I just want to say two things then. What we see is that truly happy person is the one who's experienced forgiveness in Jesus Christ because he's the only one who makes us righteous. He's the only one who makes us new. He's the only one who brings us into the presence of the Father. So, if that's the case, forgiveness is to be the normal activity of the Christian. We need to see it as the normal activity. It's through forgiveness we enter the kingdom of God, but so many times it appears that as Christians we think that forgiveness stopped at the door, and now it's kind of like we have the, the green card and we just do whatever we want. We're in the kingdom, we're good, we got our citizenship, we can now live however we want. But have you ever known just miserable Christians? You want to know why? At least one reason why? When we begin neglecting forgiveness, forgiveness between us and God, forgiveness with one another, there's only misery. Forgiveness is not only the path to happiness and that it brings us uh, to Jesus Christ, but then it's as we regularly experience forgiveness, we experience that relationship. Uh, think about it. If, if you're married, you have a husband and wife come together, right? Something that happens. What happens if they don't ask for forgiveness? They might be able to get over that one, right? Then something happens again. Now, let's say they don't, they ignore that one. They ignore, they ignore, they ignore. Eventually, they've created this mountain between them, right? Now they're miserable with each other. But with forgiveness, each time we come together in forgiveness, we're removing those things so that we might stay near with one another, so there would be nothing hindering the relationship. The same is with us and the Father. We're to regularly practice forgiveness. It's not something we're to, to shy away from. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's spoken to believers. That's spoken to the church. He's saying, God's faithful. You can keep confessing. We don't now need to hide our sin. We didn't hide it as we came into the kingdom. We don't need to hide it now as citizens. The Puritan, Richard Sibbs, this is what he said. Nothing is more terrifying than to consider that without regard to Christ, God is a consuming fire. But nothing is sweeter than to consider his glorious mercy in Jesus Christ. There is mercy every day in Jesus Christ. I want to encourage you, if you're a parent, elders, really if you're a Christian, we need to pursue forgiveness, not only for our sake, but also for the sake of others. Our children need to see us asking forgiveness, not only to one another, not only to them, but they need to see us confessing our sins to God. The church needs to see us confessing our sins. We're not a, a, a plastic people with plastic smiles on our faces. We act like that sometimes, right? I mean, I get it. Like a Sunday morning, we come in. How are you doing? Good. Right? I mean, like, how much are we supposed to reveal in the hall with coffee? Like, how much? 
Like, I get it. Like, I don't think we need to really condemn anyone. Like, they have, you know, something bad happened that week. You talk to them. I'm good. Like, they're just not ready to talk in a hall with 35 other people around them. But we do need times, right? We do need to meet with people. That's why we've been pushing the, the table groups, small groups getting together, where we, we talk with one another. We, we come around God's word. We're one-on-one with one another. We need to be practicing this forgiveness, not only for our sake, but also for the sake of others. When you ask forgiveness or share your need to for forgiveness, let's say you do that with me, you're teaching me my regular need for forgiveness. You're encouraging me to regularly seek forgiveness. Our kids need that, and every church member needs that. Because when we don't do that, the deceitfulness of sin is that our heart becomes stubborn again. And we think, oh, I don't really need to ask forgiveness. They're not really offended. I don't really need to do this. And we begin putting things in between us, and we begin developing that hard heart. Our kids need it. Our church needs it. If you are here, we need to model this forgiveness. And remember, when we share it, everyone else is a sinner too. Like, you know, like, you're like, oh, do I really have to, like, open up my, my laundry to someone? Well, they have their bag too. It's probably worse than yours. I don't know. Secondly, so that's the first one. We need for forgiveness to be the normal activity of the Christian. Secondly, forgiveness is what the world needs most. We begin by saying that we're all born pursuing happiness, right? Like Pascal said, every action that a man takes, even the one who commits suicide, is the pursuit of happiness. The problem is, in the world, apart from Jesus, we will never experience this. So as we're going out into the world, we have a message that not only saves people, it makes them disciples, but it meets the need that we're sensing. We're, we want, we desire to be happiness. The problem is we don't understand that it's through the cross that we're achieving this, that we're, uh, that we're obtaining this happiness. So this means two things. Number one, we must tell people they are sinners. This is offensive. There's no way around it. The gospel pricks at our heart. We risk friendships every time we share the gospel. But let's remember, heaven and, hang, heaven and hell is what hangs in the balance, right? If it's, if it's not unloving to push someone out of the way of an oncoming car, how much more unloving, how much more is it not unloving to try to lead someone to the gospel that they would experience the forgiveness of God and not experience eternal damnation? So yes, when we, when we lead people to forgiveness, when we lead people on the path of happiness to Jesus Christ, we will offend them. There is no way around that. So if you're sitting here and you're saying, I just want to have a better relationship with my neighbor before I tell them the gospel so they won't be offended, then you don't understand the gospel. Because at some point, you have to say, you're going to hell because of, the bi- because of you're a sinful person under the wrath of God. That's what the word of God says. Now you might not say it like that, I don't know if I just come right out in those words. That is what we're communicating, right? We have to come to people and we say, there is a problem that you have between you and God. And it's a problem that we all have. The only answer is Jesus Christ. So don't think that you're not going to be offensive. The gospel is offensive. So number one, we must tell people that they're sinners. Number two, we must tell people God wants them to be supremely happy. God's not calling us to a miserable, bland life when we experience forgiveness and i think we lose that message we get so heavy into man you're a sinful person you just need god but we need to remind them we need to remind ourselves 
the joy of the gospel. We're being brought from a separated position from God, under the condemnation of God, into a relationship with God, experiencing His love forever. Psalm 1611 says that at the right hand of God, all the pleasures are there. That's what forgiveness does. That's what reconciliation in Jesus Christ does. It brings us into the presence of God where we experience all the pleasures of God because now we are a child of God. We are share the inheritance of God. We share in the very nature of God. That is who we are as Christians now. So we need to make sure as we're communicating the message of the Bible, we're sharing the joy of the Bible, the joy of the gospel. Yes, we're sinful. Yes, there's wrath against us. The answer is Jesus. And in him, there is life and life to the fullest. God is not against our happiness. He's against us settling for too little. And that's what sin always does. Sin always wants us to settle. You remember that, that 50 cent horse ride outside the grocery store? Remember those? It wants us to settle for the 50 cent horse ride rather than experience the wonder of the amusement park. Only in Jesus Christ will our heart swell with joy, will peace abide upon us, and will his love flow in us, around us, and from us. I've said it before, as Christians, we're to be the happiest people in the world. It doesn't mean we don't have bad things happen to us. It doesn't mean that we won't suffer. But we have a peace that is able to sustain in all trials. And it's a happiness, it's a joy that we experience with God, even through the very roller coasters that we experience. The world needs to know the true gospel. And the true gospel is about not getting a do-over, but it's about being made new in Jesus. It's about being forgiven and enjoying the true happiness of God. We're going to pray. The team's going to come up here. Father, Father, I thank you for the gospel. I thank you for the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ. That you call us to forgiveness and by grace through faith in your son alone, we can experience this forgiveness, this salvation. That not only are we forgiven, but we're made new. We're made new. Made righteous. That we would share in all of eternity with your glory. God, may we know that. May we see the joy of forgiveness. May we embrace that. And Lord, if there is anyone here today who has not received you, may they receive your son Jesus Christ right now. May they confess that you are Lord and that they are a sinner and that they need your forgiveness. And God, may that be the regular cry of our heart. That as we experience sin, that we would confess that to you, confess that to others, acknowledging our need for your grace on a regular basis. God, I thank you for your son, Jesus. God, help us to embrace the gospel here. Help us to confess our sins to one another here on a regular basis, not pretending that we're not sinful, not pretending that we're perfect, but knowing that in you we are righteous, and therefore we are now free to confess our sins. God, thank you for the joy that is found in your son. Thank you for the joy that is found in your son, Jesus Christ. Help us as a church, to know that, to embrace that life that only comes through Jesus. In your wonderful name, amen. Three questions. So there's always a number in the back of your bulletin that you can text during the uh, service, and you can ask questions. Number one, you said that the only, 
only those who are forgiven are happy, but can't unbelievers be happy also? Yes, they can be. Um, but, but I say it's a delusion because it's not going to last, and it can't last. Um, because one day, when Christ returns, they will only experience the judgment of God, never, ever, ever experience happiness again. And that's why God, I think, now presses that, that weight upon us now that he wouldn't crush us later through, his, um, through judgment. But that we'd understand that by faith in him, all of our sins have been paid in Jesus Christ. And so our, don't deny the fact that unbelievers can have fun. Don't deny that uh, those in whatever lifestyle they're in, they, they can love their lifestyle at that moment. But we're not calling them to, to another kind of happiness. We're calling them to real happiness, to real life. I mean, I love uh, Romans 5. It literally says the, the, the role of the Spirit is he's pouring love inside of us. I mean, the Spirit is love, and he just dwells within us that we're regularly experiencing the love and the comfort of God. Unbelievers don't have that kind of joy and happiness. Uh, another question, how do I know God really forgives? That's a good question. Like, how do you know? Uh, the cross. It's all about the cross. It's all about God did not crush his son so that maybe he would forgive us. It is the guarantee of anyone who confesses their sin before the Lord Jesus Christ, he will forgive. That's the whole point of the gospel. It's not to maybe if you come and then like we kind of get to death and it's like flip a coin. Um, it is that we would have assurance. Like we are meant to have assurance now. That's why 1 John 5.13 says, I write to you that you would know you are saved if you have belief in the Son of God. We're to know this. There's assurance because of the Son of Jesus Christ. Last question. If God is so gracious, then why would he punish forever? What about purgatory? Th those are real questions. Um, purgatory is not in the Bible. I'm sorry. I'm sorry if you're here and, and that's, uh, Catholics will teach that a lot um, in the Catholic Church. There is no purgatory. Hebrews 9.27 says that we have one life to live. After that, we face death and then there is judgment. This is, why, this is why Jesus says, go make disciples now, because this is the life that we have. We have this lifetime now. That's why we want to be so urgent as we plead with people with the gospel. Because once death comes, then, then there is no other chance. Because like, surely once the great waters, the great rush of waters come, our cries will not come to his ear. That's what we saw in verse 6. They won't come at that moment. So the whole idea of the gospel, the purpose of the gospel is that we would we proclaim it now with all authority that comes in the name of God, knowing that whoever believes in him will be forgiven. And so um, I hope that answers uh, that question. We have one more song. Uh, I'm going to pray, and then we'll, we'll do that as we close. Father, again, I thank you. I thank you that you forgive. I thank you that we are not a petri dish that you are just trying out. But that we, that God, you, you have sent your son here that you would redeem a people. And that you are sovereign over all events. And that even before creation, you had determined and planned to send your son. That all who you had named would become believers and part of your family. God, I pray that we, as Timberline, that we would love this gospel so much. 
that we would embrace that we have been forgiven, that we would understand the weight of our sin, that God, you have paid through the, through the death of your son, Jesus, and that now the life that we have. God, may we understand that the life that you give us is full of joy, a joy that, that God is good now and it only grows in intensity as you come and we spend eternity with you. God, help us to proclaim this message. May we not be bashful. May we not be ashamed. And may we be bold with the gospel, knowing that, God, when your gospel goes out, when your word goes forth, it will always accomplish the purpose that you have set. May we believe that. May we know that. May we know that more and more people will believe in you. God, help us to, to be bold and to share the gospel. And may you produce a great harvest. In your name, Jesus, amen.